One afternoon, in the year before his death, his illness consolidating George, decided to dictate memories and anecdotes from his life into a tape recorder. His wife was out shopping, and so he took the recorder down to his work desk in the basement. There was a wood stove in the tool shop, and he crumpled up some old newspaper and put it into the fire along with three logs. The levers on the tape recorder required some effort before they clicked into place, and then George leaned forward into the microphone, and with his arms crossed and resting on the edge of the desk as if he were answering questions at a hearing, he began formally. My name is George Washington Crosby. I was born in West Cove, Maine in the year 1915. I moved to Enron, Massachusetts in 1936, and so on. After the statistics, he found that he could only think of doggerel and slightly obscene anecdotes to tell, mostly having to do with foolish stunts during fishing trips. But after a handful of such stories, he began to talk about his father and his mother, about his brother Joe, and taking night courses to finish school. He talked about blue snow and barrels of apples and splitting frozen wood so brittle that it rang when he split it. He talked about what it was like to be a grandparent for the first time, to think about what you will leave behind when you die. By the time the tape ran out, an hour and a half later, and the record button sprang up with a buzz, George was openly weeping and lamenting the loss of this world, this world of light and hope. So deeply moved, George pulled the cassette from the machine, flipped it back over to the beginning, fitted it back to its snug carriage and pressed play, thinking that he might preserve such a mood of pure, clean sorrow by listening back to his narrative. He imagined that his memoirs might now sound like those of an admirable stranger, a person he did not know but whom he ultimately recognized and loved dearly. Instead, the voice sounded nasally and pinched and worse, not very well educated as if he were a bumpkin who had been called to testify about holy things. As if not his testimony, but his fumbling through it were the reason for George's presence in front of some dire heavenly senate. The old man listened to the tape for six seconds before he ejected it and threw it into the fire. Well, I wonder if you've ever done a George from Paul Harding's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Tinkers. Perhaps motivated by the passing of time, an illness newly discovered like George, or just a new year like the one only yesterday. Have you ever sat down to think about your end and so to record memories and anecdotes from your life? And if you have done a George, or if you had to do a George, would such a recording cause you to weep like George as you lamented the loss of this world, this world of so-called light and hope? How do you describe yourself on such a tape recording? How do you think you would feel when you listened back to it with, with, with visions of such holy things before you? Would it be a recording fit for a heavenly senate or fit for an earthly fire? Friends, at the start of this new year, a year when we're all a little bit closer towards the end and closer to, to handing over such a recording, friends, at the start of this, this new year, what are you looking to? Where are you looking to? Are you looking back 
to where you have been? Are you looking forward to where you are going? But you see, our passage this morning in this new three-part series, on the last two chapters of the Bible, we meet in another old man who before his end took the time to press the record button to document the sights and the sounds of life and to picture himself before a heavenly senate. And yet... And yet an old man who during that process did not lament the loss of this world, but who longed for the loss of this world. An old man whose mind was not filled with what he once was, but what he would be soon. An old man who did not look back at where he was once, but who looked forward to where he was going. The old man in question was not a George, but a John. And John was no made-up man from a novel, For John was a first century fisherman come historian who was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, John became a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet a Christian who had a very unique privilege. For as he says at the start of his gospel account, John not only saw in this world Jesus with his own eyes and heard Jesus in this world with his own ears before Jesus left this world, But John also, as he says at the start of this book, the book of Revelation, that he saw in the next world Jesus with his own eyes and heard Jesus in the next world with his own ears before he himself left this world. For the Apostle John, around the year 95 AD, whilst exiled on the Greek island of Patmos by the Roman emperor Titus, saw and heard Jesus for a second time. But what John saw and heard from Jesus, particularly in these last two chapters, was not of this world. For what John saw and heard and then recorded as his life closed was not a kind of highlights reel of where he and Jesus grew up. There are no memories of foolish stunts during fishing trips, no sights of of, of blue snow and apple barrels, no, the, the, the sound of frozen wood so brittle that it rang when he split it. Rather, what is recorded in these two chapters is the sights and sounds of where Christ is now and therefore where John was going and therefore where all followers of Christ should set their minds this year and every year. And so again, my friends, as this new year begins, where are you going? First point this morning, where are you going? Well, as joyous as it would be, I don't want to spend too much time at this first point. For as you shall see on your new sermon card, I hope to have a whole sermon devoted to what this place shall be like. Nevertheless, there are two things which we mustn't miss when it comes to where Christians are going in this passage. And the first of those is that Christians are going to a new place, to a new place. In 1987, Belinda Carlisle very famously sang... Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Ooh, baby, heaven is a place on earth. Well, it turns out that Belinda Carlisle was lying, for heaven is not a place on earth. Indeed, verse 1, Jesus reveals to John a new heaven and a new earth, and John sees the first heaven and the first earth passing away. And likewise, if you look with me to verse 2, we note that, that John sees a Jerusalem which is not earthly but new. For in verse 4, the former things have passed away, 
And the reason for that, verse 5, is because Jesus himself declares that he is making all things new. Can you see where the followers of Jesus are headed? They are headed to a new place. To a place that has a resemblance of the old, and yet a place which is defined by a fundamental change with the old. And what fundamental change does John particularly envision here? Well, just look down at the glorious verse 4. For John hears with his own ears, listens carefully, but hears no crying. John sees with his own eyes, looks carefully, but, but sees no pain. For when Christ makes all things new, there is no sound of sobbing. No screaming, no shouting, no shedding of tears. There is no sight of anyone in agony, no anguish, no affliction, no aching bones. No sound of hearses driving by. No sound of weeping widows as dirt hits coffin lids. No sight of hospitals filling up. No sight of weeping mothers as disease hits their kids. For verse 4, all of those things will be no more. Friends, with each passing year of ministry, where I often get a front row seat at crying and pain, and with each passing new year of my own life, the more I long for such newness. In the 1980s, when I was a naive and invincible little boy, and I didn't know what the world was really like, I sang loudly to the likes of Belinda Carlisle and dreamt of heaven on earth. But having grown up today and having discovered what this world is really like, the songs that I sing at the top of my lungs in the car are the songs that speak of the reality of a heaven which is not like this earth. My Christian friend, what about you? What about you? As this new year begins to bud, where does your mind dwell? Why does it dwell most of the time? To just a few years forward? To what may be, or just a few years back to once was, is your soul constantly just feeding upon this world? What may transpire in 2022? What was trashed in 2021? Do you spend most of your hours chewing on what is passing away? Or is your mind daily feeding on glorious visions of your new future? For where are we going if we follow Jesus? We are going to a new place. However, if we look carefully, it is not just the newness of where Christians are going that, that is stressed by John, is it? Earlier this week, I was reading a very positive uh, American travel blog which told me that 2022 was the year uh, for traveling somewhere new. Uh, the long and well articulated and argued article told me that there were so many new places to see and that new places boost our confidence levels and that new places make better memories. But by the end of the long uh, blog post, right at the end, there was, there was just one comment, a, uh, a comment so blunt and withering, it was probably made by a Brit, for a man named Ferdinand simply wrote, new places can be a lot of fun, but it really is determined by where you're traveling to. And for all his bluntness, Ferdinand is right, isn't he? New places can be delightful, particularly if they don't bear all the hallmarks of the places that we leave. But newness in itself does not always determine pleasure. Rather, it is whose place that we are traveling to. 
And in verse 3, we see whose place Christians are traveling through. At verse 3, and I heard a sound from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. Friends, the final place to where we are headed if we trust in Jesus is a delightful and it is a glorious place. But the reason for its delightful glory is because the author of all delight and glory dwells there. Where are we going? Secondly, We are going to God's place, to God's place. You know, friends, there are so many blessings described in verses three and four. If only we would make the time to let our minds uh, play around in such verses. For John calls us to picture the end of missing loved ones, the end of funerals and tissues, the end of stubbed toes and migraines. And in other places of scripture, we are called to picture the great freedom that we shall have from temptation and the great reunion we shall have with other believers and, and the great rest we shall have from all earthly labor. But best of all, best of all, best of all is that we shall be with the God who made us and who loves us. People shall no longer just read stories of Jesus and try to picture what it must have been like to be with God by the lake of Galilee or on the streets of Jerusalem as, the, as believers in the New Testament did. People shall no longer just stand outside a temple or a tabernacle or a frightful mountain as believers did in the Old Testament, but rather people may return all the way back to that happy Genesis where those who loved God walked with him in the cool of the day in the garden. As the English minister Richard Sibbs wrote, heaven is not heaven without God. I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without him. He is the very heaven of heaven. Friends, you see what what is pictured in verses two and three is not some kind of distant genie and his wand and him just waving it and then this new world for us to explore by ourselves. Rather, it is the removal of a dividing wall between two lovers who long to be together between a a groom and his bride. Indeed, we may picture the events of verse 3 here, like, like a bride waiting outside the church in the winter, umbrella overhead in the rain, peering through a semi transparent window but barred by the old church door, and her husband to be waiting by the glorious altar in the warm and the dry, with all of the bride's best friends. And then that door of separation being flung open and two places becoming one and two people being drawn together for the longed-for relational closeness has come. And my Christian friends, with each passing year, you and I are one step closer to that door being opened and dwelling in the very presence of God. As Nanthi Guthrie writes, with each passing year, we are one step closer to the shadow of temporary marriage being swallowed up and giving way to its substance, the eternal marriage between Christ and his bride. And this will be the happiest marriage of all time. Where are we going? To a new place, to God's place.
But this morning, as we think about our ultimate end and our new ultimate beginning, the primary question that I want us to ask of this passage relates uh, not to a description of the where, of the where we're going, but rather the who of who will be there. And so second and final and main question for us this morning, when it comes to our final destination, when it comes to God's place where all things will be new, who is going to be there? Who is going to be there? Now, throughout John's book of of Revelation, a book originally written to uh, seven churches in modern-day Turkey, seven churches which were actually going under huge persecution under the Roman Empire in the first century. And throughout this book, which is jam-packed, full of, of vivid imagery, John describes who will go to be with God in the new creation in many, many different ways. But in this particular section, there are three very striking pictures painted by John. And the first of these pictures, as we've already begun to think about, is a picture of a bride who is adorned. A bride who will be adorned. Who is going there? Brides who will be adorned. If we look back up to verse 2, we we see that that the New Testament church, the New Jerusalem... Is pictured as a bride on her wedding day, a bride headed to be with her husband. And yet there is something particular that John wants us to remember about brides generally and this bride specifically. And that is that this bride has been prepared for this moment. And that she has been prepared, verse 2, with adornments. I'm reliably informed uh, by various wedding magazines that the average cost of just adorning a bride, uh, never mind the rest of the wedding costs, in the U.S. in 2021 was around $2,000. Accordingly, if your daughter got married this past year, when you factor in the dress and the shoes and the jewelry and her makeup and her haircut, you likely spent 5% of your total salary just for that moment when your daughter walked down the aisle. Now, on one level, such adornment, such cosmeo, as it says here in the Greek, which is where we get the word uh, cosmetics from, may seem extravagant to us. And yet there is a simple reason for such lavish expense. And verse 2 reveals it to us in case we were in any doubt. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Who is going to the new creation? What type of people, Christians who have been prepared, made beautiful by God? Christians who have been given stunning robes of righteousness. Christians whose father has paid the price for all their loveliness. Christians who have been adorned morally to be brought into this holy city and adorned so that they might be a delight to their beloved. My Christian friends, can can you see here that when we get to the new creation that we are made new too? Indeed, we'll be holy. Holy in a way that we can never be now. And we will be adorned with such beauty that we will not be reluctantly accepted by Jesus, but adorned for Jesus and so adored by Jesus. You know, in this life, many may look at our beauty and sigh. In this life, many may look at our physical beauty with disdain, at our intellectual beauty with disapproval, our emotional beauty with displeasure. 
But more commonly in this life, many will look at our thoughts and our words and our deeds and they will roll their eyes in great disappointment. And sometimes in this life, that sense of deep disappointment in all our moral ugliness, that deep sense of disappointment that we ourselves feel when we look in the mirror of God's word, or the disappointment that we see in the face of a loved one, sometimes that great disappointment in us is apt. For sometimes, just like George, even as Christians, we may sit down to record the key moments in our life and recall the very ugly things that we have said and that we have done, replaying such moments that cannot be erased from the tape. But as a result, just like George, we often sometimes ponder a dire heavenly senate who shall tut at us or even a disappointed Lord Jesus who shall sigh at us in the end. But my Christian brother and sister, I promise you that in the new creation that shall not happen. For you will be a delight to your most beloved. For there will be no reason for the Lord Jesus to sigh when he sees you in heaven. For there, my friends, his love for you will no longer be driven by his unending patience. His love for you for the first time will be driven by your unending beauty. For you shall be like a bride made beautiful. You shall be adorned in utter holiness by God. And so you shall be perfectly lovely to him. Friends, what comfort, what comfort we find in Christianity. What contrast to other religions. For in other religions, when one approaches God or the gods in heaven, one hopes that they will just about scrub up well enough. And so the religious think of heaven and they wonder and they worry if God might like their robes of self-righteousness enough to, to put up with them throughout all eternity. Not so with Christianity. For in Christianity, God does the dressing before we even get there. Those who trust in Christ are adorned by Christ for their robes are not their own, but ones that Christ himself has sewn. And their old stained clothes are removed completely and they are adorned in this eternal, glorious attire that will bring a smile to the face of the holy who shall look at them with delight forever. And my friends, we ought to remember that 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 is true for every single one of us who is going there. All in Christ shall be perfectly adorned. There is not one annoying Christian in this room or one annoying Christian in our memory who shall stand as Christ's bride in slightly soiled dress. There is not one Christian whose garments shall be torn or nor tainted by what they have said and done in this world. Again, there is not one, not one, who shall not be lovely to Christ and lovely to all their brothers and sisters. Indeed, there shall be none in heaven who are nervous with regard to their own loveliness. They shall be lovely to all. Friends, where are you going? What will you be like soon? Who will be there? If we are Christians, we shall soon be adorned brides. Adorned brides. However, as we move from verse 2, we see this painting of the new creation changes with respect to its occupants. Uh, for the painting of the bride dress for her husband is quickly replaced by a second image in verse 6. 
And can you see who is painted there? Verse 6, look with me. And Jesus said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Who is going to be there? Secondly, beggars who once thirsted. Beggars who once thirsted. In the winter of 1546, uh, shortly after the turn of the new year, another sick old man was recounting his life. Uh, in those days, there were no tape recorders like John. This man had only pen and paper. And so after a meal with his friends where he recalled memories and anecdotes from his life, the great theologian Martin Luther felt his chest tightening and went to bed. In the morning, his friends found Luther dead. But by his bedside table, there was one lasting recording, a 16th century tape recording, if you will. For before Luther left this world, he scrawled on a piece of paper, we are beggars, this is true. We are beggars, this is true. And in many ways, those words summarized his whole life. For Martin Luther knew that Scripture clearly taught that whilst every single person thirsted for eternal life, that every single person was totally bereft of the resources able to attain it. And in verse 6 of our passage, that theological summary of Scripture is seen in picture form. For John pictures beggars at the gates of the new creation, beggars who have thirsted for eternal life all their days, and yet beggars who have known all their days that they have no heavenly coinage for it, and so beggars who beg Jesus. And what do these beggars hear? From the lips of Jesus in response, what does John overhear Jesus saying to those who thirst for eternal life while Jesus is the unchanging Alpha and Omega, and so the answer Jesus gives in the new creation is the same as he gives in the old. For just like when Jesus met the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus says to these beggars, verse 7, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life and without payment. Without any payment. Friends, this morning, I've been talking to Christians throughout. And in many senses, I don't make any apologies for that. Sermons here are primarily for believers, although, of course, anybody is welcome at all. However, if you're visiting with us, and you've been patiently sitting here, uh, waiting for all this nonsense about heaven to be over, waiting to chat to friends and family afterwards, let me just speak to you just for a moment. For my unbelieving friend, even if you think all of this is just a lie about pie in the sky, even if you think that the maturity in this life is just accepting that this is it, that we have X number of, of New Year's and then we rot. My unbelieving friend, if that's you, I really want you to understand two things. That this is how the Bible says that you get eternal life. And that this is how true Christians see themselves. For listen, you will never ever understand Christianity unless you understand that Christians believe that they are both those who recognize that they are spiritually parched, thirsty for eternal life, thirsty for something better than this world, and yet also those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, beggars when it comes to procuring that better world. And friends, I'm conscious that because of that, 
But on the surface, the message of Christianity might sound terrible to you. Who'd want to come to a church and listen to sermons which kept on dredging up that reminder of your thirst for a new world and then reminding you that you had no money to buy it with? But my friend, that's not true Christianity. For Christianity is wonderfully the news that Jesus stands offering the eternal waters of life to the thirsty without payment. And so, my unbelieving friends, let me ask you with a bold audacity, will you not drink this day, please? For I know that deep down you are thirsty. For Scripture says that God has placed eternity into the heart of every man. And I know that though Christmas promised much and maybe delivered much, that no presents or food or company were able to satisfy that thirst. My friend, Jesus stands this morning and he lovingly invites you to drink what is wonderfully free before it is too late. Friend, he will never ever turn away the thirsty because of their innate poverty. Indeed, a humble recognition of spiritual bankruptcy is exactly what qualifies you. And oh, how he loves to satisfy the thirsty beggar. Who is going to be there in the new creation? Brides who will be adorned beggars who once thirsted, and finally this morning, beneficiaries who conquer now. Beneficiaries who conquer now. It is captivating an ever-changing vision of the new creation given to John by the Lord Jesus. John's paintbrush kind of swirls around from a canvas of a, of a wedding scene and a joyous husband and bride together, and then to a painting of spring of water and a trustworthy and merciful owner of it with once thirsty beggars all around him now dancing in its freeness. But in verses 7 and 8, a final picture is sketched by John, which reveals who is going there. And perhaps to our great surprise, given the warmth of those previous two paintings, the final picture here is simply of a wealthy landowner writing out his will at the kitchen table. So look with me to verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As George recorded on his tape, when we come to the very end, we often think about what we will leave behind to others when we die. And although John's picture here is of a heavenly father who will never die, we nonetheless are to picture a scene where the beneficiaries in a father's will are now apportioned their land. And as for the one who's truly God's son, well, they are apportioned this heritage. And this heritage, of course, is all that John has been describing this morning. A place without crying, a place without pain, a place of weddings, a place where water quenches every type of thirst. This heritage is the place where we as sons and daughters get the keys to our father's house. A place that we will not only reside in, but shall rule and best of all, shall rule and reside in our, with our father in perfect relationship. And yet there is a caveat in the Father's will, isn't there? For verse 6 does not simply run into verse 7 without the phrase, the one who conquers. The one who conquers will have this heritage. There is a strict requirement for it. And as we have seen, the requirement is not a perfected beauty by the end, for we shall be adorned on that final day. 
And nor is the requirement spiritual capital at the start, for the water of life is given without money. But the requirement is an ability to conquer, or in some versions, the ability to overcome. In short and in context, as John writes to the persecuted church, he reminds them that those who get the new world are children who do not live for this one are children who are not ashamed of their father in this world, are children who do not shake hands with the world and compromise, are children who do not live as though this world were the place of light and hope. Friends, this new year, just like every year, we are again called to conquer, to overcome, to persevere with the help of the Holy Spirit and to fight temptation not to be faithful to God. We are called not to be cowards next year. We are called to fight sin and Satan next year, for we shall be with our Father very soon. Friends, what is written here is not meant to scold us, but to spur us on and to cause us to look forward and to ensure that we shall be found on that final day as faithful sons and daughters. Because you see, in our very final verse, we discover that some will go somewhere else that some will sadly not be going with us. For this picture of a father writing out the details of his will makes reference not only to a beneficial place, but, but also to his apportioning of a burning place. Verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars, their portion their inheritance, their place distributed by their father will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Some shall inherit and dwell in an oasis of eternal water. Some shall inherit and dwell in a lake of eternal fire and sulfur. And friends, I'll take absolutely no pleasure in detailing the father's will here in reading out the inheritance of that final water body for sons and daughters of this world. And yet my job does not allow me to gloss over this somber future. For those who have lived with no reference to their heavenly father, who have given, who has given them so many good things, who desires to give them something even better, for those who desire not holy robes, but detestable garments, to those who desire not water of life but thirst after this world, for those who are cowards and follow the world and not Christ, for those who are faithless and so look to kill the faithful, for those whose tape recording of life is genuinely fire-worthy and they have no other tape of Christ, they will indeed go to the fire. They will get exactly what they desire. They will get exactly what they deserve a world like this one, a world of pain and crying, a world far away from God. Friends, at the start of this new year, a year when we're all a little bit close to the end, friends, at the start of this new year, where are you looking? Are you looking back to where you've been? Or are you looking forward to where you're going? I want us to close with the thoughts of one final old man who was contemplating his end. Not a famous old man, 
named George from fiction, not a famous old man named Martin from theology, not even a famous old man named John from the Bible, but rather the final contemplations made by a simple Christian man named Adam, who was Sarah, my wife's great, great, great grandfather, on New Year's Day in 1889, in what would be the very last year of his life. He's given a poem written by his son, and it goes like this. Another year has flown, and I am nearer my heavenly home. I soon shall be at rest. I'm waiting now the call of my dear Savior. Come unto me and be forever blessed. I'm longing to be free from care and sorrow. My feeble body often gives me pain. My feet are tired of so long a journey. I'm weary wailing over life's troubled main. But soon I'll enter into the blessed heaven and see my Savior on the other shore and meet with loved ones that have gone before me to praise God's holy name forevermore. Eye hath not seen the glory that awaits me, ear hath not heard the sweet melodious lay, tongue cannot tell the rapture of the ransomed, or could I join that happy throng today? I stand with awe today, my heart is grateful, I bow me low before the throne of grace to thank thee, Lord, that thou hast sought me. I'll praise thee, salvation, all my days. I would be a holy thing, dear Jesus, take me. May thy blood every moment keep me white. I trust thee now that thou will not forsake me. If thou art with me, all my way is bright. With joy I shall bear my cross a little longer. My Savior bore a heavier cross for me. I'll look to him for grace in all my trials. They'll soon be over. My home I shall soon see. Then lead me, blessed Jesus, in this new year. Be thou my God, my counsel, and my guide. And if this year should prove on earth my last one, take me with thee to everlasting light. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the wonderful promises in your word. Father, we thank you for this vision of John in his last days. We thank you that you wrote down what the Lord Jesus had revealed to him. And we thank you that one day very soon, maybe even this year, we shall go home to you. For Father, we rejoice in that place that your son has prepared for us. We think about its newness now. No crying, no pain, no death. We think about amazingly seeing you face to face and seeing you perfectly adorned and as adorned in all holiness. We think of that wedding day, and we, we, we think about those free waters of eternal life. We think of all the happy benefits of that inheritance to your sons and daughters who simply keep trusting in you. And so we ask, Father, please, that this year you will help us to keep thinking about such things, 
May our minds not be trapped in the immediate, trapped in the few years behind us or the few years ahead of us. Instead, we ask that you would keep such things in our minds and that we would be people who look forward to what is coming. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.